Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, bartender, part-time Bible nerd, and even coffee roaster, bringing together all of the thoughts of the Bible um, together into one episode as we work our way chapter by chapter through both the books of Deuteronomy and Romans. Today, we are tackling chapter 10 of the book of Romans. This chapter, I must confess, was the chapter I was dreading the most when uh, working through the book of Romans. We'll talk about why in a second. We'll talk about uh, exactly what's going on in chapter 10 of the book of Romans and uh, lots more to discuss as we dive in. So strap in. Outside of this uh, chapter, I think it's good to do a little bit of a recap, as we've always been doing throughout all of these chapters. Um, the focus of uh, this section that we're in is really to answer both for Paul and for um, the Gentiles and Jews in the city of Rome, the question of what to do with the Jews. Um, there's a lot of tension that's existing within the Roman church right now when it comes to Jews, um, especially because they were all exiled from Rome for a period of time, and the Gentiles got to run the church in Rome pretty much free of any Jewish influence. And after a period of time, uh, the Jews were then uh, allowed to return into Rome, and they started attending the churches that they were Uh, previously attending and finding that um, it was very different and that the Gentiles were not being as kind to Jewish opinion on certain uh, laws and Sabbath laws and um, kosher laws and that nature. So Paul, in a huge way, hears about this and writes the book of Romans really to explain how these two groups of people that are now finding this tension existing within their church, how they can see the gospel story of Jesus um, who came um, as a unifying figure for both stories and see how that that unifying figure can actually resolve a lot of the tensions that are going on in their church. That's the big point of the book of Romans. We talked about that in Romans 1. Um, Paul then goes into explaining how um, through the story of sin, a Jew and a Gentile can find themselves in both similar situations and that they both similarly need Jesus. As a result of that, um, he then launches into how the way that both a Jew and a Gentile um, can 
access Jesus is through faith. Um, that faith he then talks about for Jewish people is not antithetical to um, the law of Genesis through Deuteronomy, but is actually something that Abraham himself had um, in the story of Abraham in Genesis. As a result of that discussion, he then moves even further back to discuss Adam and how Adam plays a huge role in unifying all humanity underneath sin, and that they all need Christ as a unifying figure. They all need to put their faith in Christ as a unifying figure to then find um, a new sense of hope. This means, though, that they can't just... um, have faith and then continue to live the way that they want to live. Um, if they actually put their faith in Christ, they actually have to live that out through the way that Jesus lived it out, um, which means um, essentially dying to self, um, being buried with him in baptism, putting off um, the old sins um, that they were living and living the way that they should be living. Um, Paul then takes another step back after discussing those issues and raises the question, well, Um, What does it look like for a Jew um, that becomes a Christian um, but then decides that the law is something that um, they still want to follow? And so he spends the rest of chapter 7 of the book of Romans really answering that question of um, what the law does um, for a Jew in particular um, and how it worked in the history of Judaism and how it in particular didn't offer any salvation to them when they were uh, in the Old Testament uh, serving under Moses and then later on into the land of Canaan. The law actually served to um, make sin even worse in a Jew's life. And so um, his point at the very end of Romans 7 is they need some other kind of law that um, fixes the Jewish story. And that story is found in Romans 8. Um, And he sees the Holy Spirit really stepping into the role of the law. And the Holy Spirit is the person that then revives both a Jew and a Gentile into allegiance to God. And as a result, all of the story of Romans 8 is a story of how the Holy Spirit is bringing new creation and new life into both humans and into um, the earth and into um, the story of uh, the Jewish people that's been struggling so much. He, he concludes that chapter by saying that now this whole family is going to be called um, elected and chosen um, uh, through the Messiah now, and uh, that the call of Abraham um, has been subsumed into the call of Christ. Um, that whole um, ending section, of course, launches us into this current section that we're in, in which uh, many Jews um, revolted against Um, Paul saying things of that nature, and as a result, um, he has to deal with the question, what what is the problem then? Why is it that if um, the Christian story um, is now the new um, creation of what God had always intended to do through Abraham, and we can actually say that Abraham's um, calling is now lived out through the life of Christians, why then is it that Jewish people um, are historically at least um, resisting Christianity the most and having the most problems with Paul? So he spends chapter 9 then explaining how um, as a uh Jewish person, um, that doesn't just automatically mean that you're going to be in good covenant relationship with God. Um, He points to examples like Ishmael, uh, for instance, um, to show that uh, 
that doesn't just mean that just because you were born from Abraham doesn't mean that you are part of the covenant. Um, he then talks about how um, even before um, uh, a person does right from wrong, God will actually decide um, who is part of his covenant um, and who is not part of his covenant. And remember, we talked about being part of God's covenant does not mean being saved from hell or heaven. Being part of God's covenant means being part of the uh, covenant of Israel in which they were called to be a light to the nations, to be um, that city shining on a hill. And that's what he's talking about when he's talking about election. Um, So he talks about how Jacob was just as horrible as um, uh, Esau was, and yet Jacob was the one that was chosen. Um, He then goes in to discuss how um, God has a track record throughout the Old Testament of using people that don't believe in him um, and that uh, are not chosen by him um, for his own purposes still. They still um, can be used by him, and God is within his rights to use people of that nature. And he implies that Israel is in this situation right now. Even though they don't believe in Jesus, God can still use them to good effect. And the good effect that he sees them being used um, is that uh, it's through their disbelief that Gentiles are actually going to become um, more um Uh, close with God and actually become saved. And so through an inadvertent way, the Jewish people are becoming that light on a hill, just not by believing. They're being able to be um, made uh, back into uh, regular clay um, and being destroyed in a huge way. Um, And that itself is actually evidence enough for Gentiles to want to repent and turn away. Think of the story of uh, Nineveh um, and the story of Jonah. Jonah is actually the character that's the worst character, and he's the Israelite, um, and he's the one that um, has a struggle with God, and when he actually, even for a hairbreadth of a second, does follow through with what God wants him to do, um, all the Gentiles in the city of Nineveh repent almost immediately. And the idea here is really the same. Um, The idea is that Gentiles now are converting despite Israel um, not believing, but God is still using Israel's unbelief to bring about um, uh, the Gentiles' faith, um, which is a really important point for Paul in that um, he has a hope. We'll talk about this in the next chapter after chapter 10. He has a hope that um, the the Jews will eventually come around, and we'll talk about that in chapter 11. But for right now, that that's a good place to kind of um, begin um, chapter 10 at. Um, what's interesting about chapter 10 um, as a uh, overarching um, continuation of his argument about the Jews and what they're um, currently dealing with is you can really uh, separate um, chapters 9, 10, and 11 into both um the uh, past, present, and the future. Romans 9 is really focused in on how God dealt with the Jews in the past and how, um, honestly, Paul's big point here is that nothing's much changed um, with how God has dealt with the Jews in the past and how things are uh, panning out now. The Jews are still being stubborn and God is still treating them as he's always treated treated them with mercy. Um, Chapter 10 is now focused on um, how the... uh, Jews then in current struggles with Paul are relating with Paul, and he's focused a little bit more on the Jewish doctrines um, about Jesus and about Christianity, and so chapter 10 will focus presently on a lot of the current things that he sees as the most detrimental to Jews and what they believe and what they don't believe. 
um, chapter 11, then we'll focus on what Paul's hope is for the future of the Jewish people. Um, so you can kind of map the, these three chapters really onto past, present, and future, which is really helpful for just understanding these three chapters in general. Another thing, and I mentioned this at the intro, um, is there are probably, when I, when I have read the book of Romans, um, the number one chapter, I guess I would say, that has always confused me the most has been chapter 10. And I didn't realize what was going on with it. I didn't understand a lot of Paul's arguments within it. They've kind of felt like they came out of left field. Um, and it was just very, very difficult to navigate this chapter. Um, I've since uh, learned that when one reads chapters of the Bible and one um, sees a lot of scripture references from the Old Testament, one should go back and actually read those passages within their context, and that will help tremendously in understanding what's going on in a chapter. And this is um, the best example of this I can give is uh, I just started reading every Old Testament link that Paul gave in chapter 10 of Romans, and suddenly his arguments started making a lot more sense because I understood what reference he was referencing. Um, this is Probably, I would say, the most Old Testament references within one chapter. Um, uh, Romans 9 had quite a lot. That's why it took a long time to get through. Um, but this one in particular, this one has a huge amount of Old Testament references. And so what we're going to talk a lot about today is we're going to talk about how Paul uses the Old Testament to further his own beliefs and points. And we're going to see a bit of a tension in this episode even of how the Old Testament was written and what it was intending to communicate and what um, Paul has recast, I guess I would say, from his own interpretations of the Old Testament and how Christians can see some of the things that were written in the Old Testament um, from his own perspective, um, which will be fun to talk about. I'm always fascinated in how um, the New Testament writers reinterpreted the Old Testament in light of Jesus. Um, one of the, my favorite um, examples of the fact that this is a true statement to say that um, the New Testament kind of re uh, cast the Old Testament or reinterpreted several passages in the Old Testament um, is uh, uh, the story of the two on the road to Emmaus. And um, as they're walking along, they're discussing scripture and they're discussing what's going on. They've heard rumors that Jesus is going to resurrect, that Jesus is resurrected, but they don't really believe it. And at the very end of their journey, they come across a man that starts walking with them. And he starts to explain a lot of the Old Testament to them and starts to tell them that all of these passages in the Old Testament were really about Jesus and were really about um, uh, um, exactly what they're hearing. And that um, it's actually really true that Jesus is resurrected from the dead and that he was the Messiah. Um, all of this, uh, they already had a preconditioning to think that way because they were all following under uh, Christ. Um, it, but it took someone to actually like go back and reread the Old Testament and explain how these connections all work as a Christian for them to really understand. And so it's a big point to me is that a Jew that was reading the Old Testament almost every day of their life um, did not understand uh how the Old Testament was trying to talk about Jesus, and it they needed um, Jesus actually to come along and explain to them all of the Old Testament correlations. You can find the same thing, um, and this is a less good example, but like you can find the same thing with the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip when the Ethiopian eunuch is reading um, 
Isaiah, and he's confused by it, um, and he needs Philip as a Christian to come along and explain several of the passages. The Ethiopian's eunuch's big question um, about Isaiah is, um, is the prophet talking about himself or is he talking about another? Um, and so that's the uh, Ethiop- uh, That's Philip's chance to say, well, have you heard about this guy named Jesus? Um, so it's always really important when um, looking at a lot of these Old Testament passages to really admit, at least at the outset, that um, the way that Jews would read the Old Testament and the way that Paul reads the Old Testament are going to be different. Um, and that's something that oh, we're going to get into today. Um, and so uh, I'm, I'm excited to kind of show you at least some of the differences between a Jewish reading of it, a Christian reading of it, and see why Paul um, believes the way he does about the Old Testament and what the Old Testament he believes can show about Jesus and show about Christianity. So with all that getting out of the way, let's go ahead and dive into the chapter. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved, for I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. But their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or, Who will descend into the dead? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? It is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I ask, did not they hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. All right, so um, we start out with um, 
him addressing uh, the Roman church and calling them brothers um, and sisters, if you're reading the NIV. Um, My heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. He's restating something he said in chapter 9. Remember one of the most profound things Paul will ever say is that he wished that he would be cursed and cut off from Christ so that all of the Israelites could be saved. Um, That is something that, like we talked about last week, something still to meditate on and think about um, as one of the most powerful things that I think Paul has ever written. Chapter uh, in verse two, he then says, "For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God." This is actually how he describes himself before he became a Christian. He describes himself using this word "zealous." Um, zealous in the Greek um, is a word um, uh, which is technically um, uh, very close to the Greek. Um, Zelone um, is the word in Greek, um, and really, what's interesting about it is uh, it's kind of describing one of the Jewish ideals of the time period, which um, I don't know if I've talked about a lot, but um, in the time period, uh, they really believed that passiveness as a Jew um, was kind of equated with um, uh kind of the diaspora Jews in which they became intermingled with Greek thought and Greek philosophy. And so it's just, uh, it's a little bit of uh, even today how like um, we kind of have like our camps of different political opinions. And if you kind of like straddle the line between two different camps, you're kind of considered someone that's like um, on the verge of becoming a traitor to either or camp. And that was in a huge sense kind of the same way that the Jews thought of um, uh, their Jewish brethren that weren't very zealous for God, um, that just kind of wanted to live their life and make money and, you know, um, in some sense were okay with living with Greeks and around Greeks and were okay having relationships with Greeks and Romans. Um, For a zealous Jew, the idea was to be as pure as possible, never to have any contact with Gentiles, um, to be as... um, reserved as possible and to really, um, hold out for this hope that, um, uh, God would return and give, uh, the Messiah that would then crush all of the Roman oppression and then allow them to be that city that they've always wanted to be. Um, they had this term even from kind of the old Testament from, um, the concept of, um, there's a story, um, that's been brought up on this podcast before about, um, um, the Jewish people intermarrying with the Moabites, and uh, as a result of that, a plague starts happening that God sends on all the people. And there's one priest that's the son of Aaron that decides to do something about it, and so he stabs a man and a woman that are currently having um, sexual relations with one another um, through the belly of both of them as they're having sexual relations, and it's that action that causes the plague to stop. As a result, um, he's given um, the high priest status, and he's also called zealous for God. Um, I think in a huge way, um, that kind of uh, story became sort of a sign for how Jews were to operate in Paul's day and age, and how they were to be zealous for God. And that's very much kind of the perspective that Paul takes, or I guess I should say Saul takes, when he persecutes Christians and is trying to get rid of this Jewish sect that he sees as very wrong and very inaccurate and um, going against the will of God. So he describes them as being zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge is his point, which is a really interesting thing for Paul. Um, you will find that um, Paul 
sees knowledge, uh, we find this in Corinthians quite a bit. Um, he sees knowledge as something that puffs up. Um, knowledge is something that definitely um, can cause a person to be prideful. But he also sees knowledge as something that, uh, at least for him, opened his eyes to Jesus. Um, and that and that, that's something that you'll actually see throughout this entirety of this chapter. It's kind of the other side of the coin of what knowledge can bring to a situation. And he really does see that um, what the Jews are lacking is the correct understanding of reading their Old Testament. You know, like they need a better knowledge of reading the Old Testament. And it's the inaccurate readings of the Old Testament that have led them to this place that um, they are in, in which they're rejecting Jesus as their Messiah. So for him, knowledge is important. And it's actually the thing that you can't just have a person that's super zealous for God without some component of knowledge. Um, And this is where I think, you know, uh, I make a case for reading those academic books that people all kind of like to, at least in some churches, I've uh, heard it said pretty regularly that like, oh, they're all up in ivory towers and they have no connection to like the real world. And like, they're just writing these thousand word books that have nothing to do with what's going on in my current church context. And you know, that accusation is sometimes very true. <laughs> um, I've read some of those books that seem to have no connection to anything that goes on in a church um, life. Um, and so they, it's not an entirely false accusation. But what I've noticed with that has been, you know, the tendency to then just kind of um, disown that whole movement and that whole um, organization and structure that has been put in place um, and to disown people that have spent their literally their lives studying scripture um, as people that are probably either leftist or um Uh, biased or um, just have some kind of agenda behind what they're doing. And uh, I think a a responsible thing to do in those circumstances is to make sure that those accusations are accurate, you know, before you actually like um, uh, just broad brush everyone um, and accuse every person in that world of being that way. And then two, um, make sure you actually read some of what they are arguing before you make those accusations, you know? Um, like, uh, a lot of the times you will find that if you start reading that kind of material, um, you will gain a knowledge of things that you didn't have before, and it opens your mind up to um, things that, um, I think, uh, in Paul's case, he was he wanted uh, his Jewish people to read the Old Testament in light of a lot of what these Christians were saying. Um, he wanted he wanted this new group of Christians to have their influence on the Old Testament, and he wanted to show them um, this new way of understanding um, the story of the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. So I, I think it's I think it's right and um, honest of Christians living today to be. I guess I would say respectful that knowledge plays a role in um, our readings of scripture and our understanding of scripture and our um, uh, ability even to worship God correctly, I guess I would say, Um, and that that is something that you can see in these verses here.
Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. We've talked about righteousness before, how righteousness um, means um, God's um, covenant faithfulness is a good way to describe it, his ability to be faithful, um, even in spite of the Israelites not being faithful on their side of the bargain to the covenant. And so um, this, this line here is they didn't recognize or understand how faithful God is being through the story of Jesus um, and how faithful God is being to his own covenant through Jesus. And because of that, they then seek to establish their own covenant faithfulness. Um, And by that, I mean that they attempt to live out their own um, way of strict rules and regulations according to the Talmud and the Mishnah um, and to a lot of the different uh, regulations of um, the Pharisees and their um, rabbinic traditions. Um, And as a result of all of that, um, they uh, are negating the fact that um, God has been faithful to them and has allowed a way of escape, and they don't need to regain a status um, with God of being faithful. God has already made them um, a people that have been justified. Um, That is been kind of the big difference between a Jew and a and Paul has been that Jews still believe um, that they need to become um, in some sense um, uh, they need to earn that uh, particular title of being faithful to the covenant um, they need to earn that righteousness and um, Paul is saying um, no uh, they it's already been done for you and uh, you just have to Uh, recognize that um, throughout the Old Testament, the entire point of the Old Testament, especially in Deuteronomy, is to say that um, uh, it was impossible for you to ever be covenant faithful people. Um, Moses even predicted it in Deuteronomy that you would not be covenant faithful people. And there's a a different way of accessing God um, and being in relationship with God, um, uh, which is through the story of faith, not the story of living in this attempt to be covenant faithful people. Um, As a result of that, um, he says they did not submit to God's faithfulness. Um, They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ then, for him, is the culmination of the law, right? That means that like, um, and this is something that we'll talk about in the book of Deuteronomy. We're getting there in a couple chapters, but um, Moses will lay out in the ending chapters that like after they go through all of the <laughs> rules that they're supposed to follow. Moses just like outright says that they're not going to succeed in following all those laws. And he says actually at the very, in chapter 30, which is something he's going to quote from later on in this chapter, he says in chapter 30 um, that after they have been exiled as a result of them not following the law, they're actually going to be brought back to the land and God is going to teach them to love him through a heart relationship with him. And he's going to give them circumcised hearts instead of circumcised flesh. Um, and he's going to be in close relationship with them. That's all in the book of Deuteronomy. And so what Paul sees is Paul sees Jesus coming on the scene as that Deuteronomy culmination. He sees that as what Jesus is doing. And so for him, all this tracks with Deuteronomy. He's not doing away with Deuteronomy. He's saying like, look, we went through a period where we attempted to follow the law. We did not do it well as Israelites. And as a result, we were exiled and now we're brought back. And what's the last thing to have happen in the book of Deuteronomy that still needs to happen? Well, it's not that they need to start 
<laughs> trying to follow the law all over again. Um, his point there is that's just going to end in the same place it ended way back in the Old Testament story. Um, his point is instead, um, we're, we're waiting on God to circumcise our hearts, to um, show us how to love him. And um, Paul thinks that that culmination, that final promise that Moses makes in Deuteronomy has come true through Jesus. Um, and that's what he's getting at here when he says Christ is the culmination of the law. So that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Notice again, everyone here means both Jews and Gentiles. Um, His implication here being that Jews no longer have that um, primary status of um, uh, um, being the light on the hill. Now everyone can access God and be in covenant relationship with God. And everyone can be a light to anyone else. Anyone can preach the good news to anyone else. Um, And it's not just Jews in specific that have the specific vocation of being that city on a hill. Now everyone has access. Moses then, uh, he then says in chapter verse five, Moses writes about this, um, the righteousness that is by the law. So he says um, um, that there is a strand in Moses in which he talks about a very strict following of the law. And like I said, that's kind of par for the course of Deuteronomy is, um, you know, it's not like Deuteronomy wasn't asking them to follow the law. It totally was. But that whole story is finished now is really what Paul is getting at. Um, He says um, he quotes from a line in Leviticus, actually, where it says the person who does these things will live by them. And that's a very standard line in Deuteronomy, even of the fact that um, when you do these things, you'll have life. If you don't obey things, you'll have death. and that came true for Paul. That came true with the story of Israel and how they're exiled out of the land. Um, he even sees that whole story. A lot of the prophetic books see that story of Israel going into exile as basically creation being unmade. It's almost like a new flood um, where um, everything goes back to Tahu Vavohu, which is like this Hebrew phrase for like desolate and um, a wild and wasteland where nothing is... Um, created and nothing is ordered. Um, and he sees the whole exile of Israel in the Babylonian, um, invasion in the old Testament as, um, uh, really going back to that decreation and uh, nothingness, um, that existed, um, before God started working with his people. And so he's, his point here is that the law says like, um, very strictly, um, if you don't, follow everything in the law, you're not going to have life. Um, and so he then, um, has this verse after it that shows that, um, also in Deuteronomy, there's a strand of, um, what's going to happen after that, which is, but the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. This is the line that always confused me when I first read this. I was like, I was tracking with Paul all up until this line, and then this line would always throw me for a loop. I was like, what? what is he getting at here? And this is actually also found in um, the book of Deuteronomy. And I figured I'd actually read this, this section so that you kind of get the full context of what's going on in Deuteronomy chapter 30. We're going to talk about it in a few weeks, so this is just going to be a prep for that, but... Um, Here's how chapter 30 starts. When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come on you and you take them to heart, whatever the Lord your God 
wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations. So we already got exile here, right? They're dispersed among the nations. And when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you, even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens. From there, the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your ancestors, and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants, so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. The Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies who hate you, who hate and persecute you. You will again obey the Lord and follow all his commands I am giving you today. Then the Lord your God will make you most prosperous in all the work of your hands, in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock, and the crops of your land. The Lord will again delight in you and make you prosperous, just as he delighted in your ancestors. If you obey the Lord your God and keep his decant commands and decrees that are written in this book of the law and turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So that's the context, right? Is that like, this is talking about after they've been exiled and have returned to the land. Now here's where he picks up with the line that he's quoting from, um, chapter 10 of the book of Romans. Now what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it, nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction, for I am For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws, that you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. All right, so you see the context there? The idea here is that um, for the passage in Deuteronomy, Moses says that line to the people because he's telling them that um, it's actually pretty easy to follow God. Um, But what that's couched in and what's wrapped around it is that the way to follow God is through a heart change, not through the full following of the law in which they're going to fail at doing in the previous section, right? And so even in even in Moses, um, there is the strand of you need to have faith in God working out a covenant with you in a way that allows you to have this love for God. And faith and love are the two things that I think um, Moses is really getting at here is this idea that like, if you take the perspective of you doing things on your own merit and your own um, attempts to succeed, what you're really doing is you're um, not acknowledging how faithful God is and you're not acknowledging how good God is to you. Um, And you're seeing it more as a... um, equal parts relationship instead of a relationship in which God does most of the full labor and you're just receiving the gifts of love from him. Um, As a result of that, um, this is something in which um, for Moses, he really wants the people to understand that when, when we have an understanding of God being very faithful to us and always giving us gifts every day, that inspires us to have a love of God. Um, We get to see 
um, all the things. And so it really requires more faith to have more love for God. Um, that's really what it boils down to. And the more faith you have, the more love you will have. Um, so all of that is kind of what is at the heart of um, Deuteronomy in that chapter. That's then what's getting used by Paul in this verse here in a kind of new way. And this is what's really interesting about what Paul sees as happening with the Jewish people in his current context. Because no longer is it about um, uh, this like command that they're supposed to follow and the command being too far out of reach, um, the command being too far up in heaven that they're not understanding it or too far across the sea that um, they can't um, sail over the sea and get the command. Um, Moses's point there is that, no, it's always been very near to your heart. And really, at the end of the day, what God really wants is a heart that loves him, a heart that has faith in him. And that's really the important thing, even in a period in time where they're asked to follow all these laws, right? His, his point basically is that like this word is not, um, uh, hard to follow if you are a person that loves God with all your heart. Um, because one, God's going to forgive you and have mercy on you. If you love him, um, you can just look at the story of David as a good example of that. Um, and on top of that, um, uh, you're actually going to find that you're, um, spirit is going to be primed to want to follow God's law instead of going and doing your own thing. That's kind of what Moses is getting at. Then Paul is going to take what Moses says about that and what he says um, implyingly about faith and say that about Jesus and how um, the line, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, becomes reused as a way to kind of argue against some people that have said the Messiah hasn't come yet. Um, Christ just means Messiah here. And so the idea is that the Messiah is still, you know, up in heaven somewhere, um, not come down because Israel hasn't been faithful to the covenant yet. And so his point here is that you can actually look back in Moses's um, explanation of this and see that like Moses never thought that um, the situation was impossible unless you followed through with every part of the law. Um, he actually thought that the word was very close to you. And Paul is using that as a way to say, Maybe you should think about that right now with this story about the Messiah that's come on the scene, and maybe the Messiah is actually very close to you right now, and you just need to believe that he is the one that has been um, uh, sent by God. Um, and so it's that same kind of level argument that he's making, um, that Moses is making, uh, right? Moses made the argument that um, the word or the commands of God are very near to the Jews listening in, and they're very near to their hearts, and if they access their hearts, um, they'll be able to follow the law. Um, Paul then makes the argument, Christ is very near to us. Um, he's very close to us, and we don't need to um, think of the Messiah as someone that needs to be earned, or someone that needs to be uh, traveled up into the heavens to bring down, right? Um or um, the reverse of that, who will descend into the deep. He actually changes this a little bit. This is really interesting that he changes this from who will cross over the sea to who will descend into the deep. And the reason he changes this is because um, 
actually in the ancient Jewish cosmology, the sea was the deepest part of the earth. And you actually would have the sea at the very bottom of the earth. And then the middle of the earth was the land. And then all the mountains were at the very top of the earth. And so um, who will descend into the very deep is very pretty much the same thing as who will cross over the sea. Um, if you cross over the sea, you're going down um, uh, in their Jewish cosmology, at least. And so he says, who will descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Who's going to attempt to um, go down into the depths of where um, in Jewish uh, cosmology, they believe that all the waters and stuff is where all the dead eventually ended up. Um, You can actually see this in um, Jonah. Um, When Jonah is swallowed by the fish, um, he sees himself as in um, the depths of where all the dead people are. Um, and he sees himself as in Sheol is what the Hebrew term is for. It's called the pit. Um, and you can read his poems, um, in the belly of the fish, um, in which, um, he sees himself as basically dead and among all the dead. Um, and the, and this is the same thing. Who's going to descend, um, uh, a huge accusation of, uh, the Jews uh, to Christianity was that the Messiah was killed, you know, um, and that doesn't make any sense at all. And so um, uh, his resurrection, they didn't believe in. And so they just can't believe in a Christian story of resurrection in which the Messiah was killed. Um, and so for him, uh, his point here is like, um, don't say who will descend into the deep to make our um, Jesus resurrect. He has resurrected, you know, um, that's the whole point is he's resurrected. Um, and that's what we believe in, which is why he says that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Um, but what does it say? He asks, the word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. So that's what he's doing. He's linking Moses's idea of the fact that, um, the commands are very close to you. And, um, he believes that Jesus is very close to you and near to your heart. And that's what Jews need to accept is, um, that old Testament, um, command that Moses gives the Jews is the very command they're breaking, um, with the story of Jesus. Um, they're either assuming that the Messiah hasn't come yet. And therefore, um, someone needs to go up into the heavens and bring him down, or they're assuming that, um, he was, a Messiah that died and that's all it was, you know? Um, and, uh, he didn't resurrect. And so as a result of that, um, yeah, it's just hopeless. Um, and either or of those, Paul is like, no, I, I, the word is very near and he's living and he's within you and he's uh, making you able to live out this life, um, that we Christians believe in. Um, but you just have to have faith that Moses is talking about. Um, and so that's where this whole, um, argument is going, but what, um, the word is near you. Um, that is, um, that is the message concerning faith we proclaim. That's his big point here is Jesus is like living within us, giving us life right now through the spirit. Um, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So that's the idea that Jesus as Lord kind of takes this connotation of Jesus being Messiah, um, being the Lord over all the world and being the savior of all of us. And then the concept of believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, um, believing in resurrection. Um, those are the two, two things that, um, Paul sees as what the Jews are not 
willing to believe. Um, they're not willing to declare that he is Lord and Messiah over their life, and they're not willing to believe in resurrection and that the Messiah was killed in the first place and then therefore was resurrected. Um, and so those two things are what um, need to be declared both with the mouth and um, uh, believed in the heart. Um, then um, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. His point here, again, being something close to what Moses was saying. If the word is like near your heart, then uh, as a result, you're going to then live that out by professing it and walking in the way of God's commands, right? That's That was um, Moses's big point. And that, that's exactly how Paul sees it in this context as well. Um, when you believe that Jesus is the answer, um, that he resurrected, and you really believe that within your heart, and then declare with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord, your way of life, your way of living, that that's the way that he is your word um, that is close to you when you declare that, um, then you, in a sense, are um, already going to be living out the way of faith in a way that's going to get you um to be saved at the very end because you're already, like I said before, faith is what leads to love and that love you're going to have is now going to be um, intermingled with the love of Jesus and the way of Jesus and that's going to make you then live out exactly how Moses saw you living out um, the Old Testament law and code after they were exiled. And so the point here, I think for Paul, is that like it's not like everything just shifts all of a sudden to a completely new way of doing things by faith. Um, he sees all of that in, 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 um, uh, Moses. Um, and Jesus now has in many ways become that culmination of the law commandments. And Jesus now is the final word, so to speak, of all of those commandments. And he's the word now that people are to um, attached to and to live by. Um, that's really what Paul sees, and that's the whole point of why he has adapted his Old Testament understanding to this new thing that's happened in his life, um, and what he's hoping that all the Jews as well will get to see. Um, he then talks about, um, as Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. This is a line that um, gets uh, brought up quite a bit in the Old Testament. This is a line that gets repeated often in the Psalms. Um, it's a line that gets repeated um, as well in the, uh, um, at least uh, in my Logos app, it's uh, referencing a specific passage in Isaiah 28, verse 16. However, what's funny about this um, is that uh, if you go to it, um, in most of your Bibles, you won't actually see that quoted directly because it's only in the Septuagint that it's quoted that way. Um, in the regular um, uh, version, it's therefore thus the Lord uh, says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes, this is the line I think that's been changed, whoever believes will not be in haste. Um, uh, in the uh, uh, Septuagint, I imagine it says, whoever believes will not be put to shame. Um, and this is something that I've talked about. Um, <laughs> Joey Jenkins, who is the um, worship leader at Wayfarers Christian Church, and I actually spent some time um, together uh, writing a song that really was at the heart of this line. Um, don't 
let me be put to shame. Um, and the idea here is that uh, for Paul, Christians that do believe in Jesus, even though it's kind of ridiculous to believe in a Messiah that was killed and then resurrected, um, Christians that do believe in him already have a heart towards God and a heart towards Jesus. And therefore, their hearts and their belief in God and their faith in God will not be ignored and God is not going to allow them to be put to shame. They're not going to be shamed even by the rest of the world, even though Jews will be shaming them, (laughs) even though Jews shame Paul currently as he's writing this letter, wherever he's at, um, he believes ultimately that anyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, Um, that people and their own definitions of what is honorable and what is shameful um, ultimately don't matter and that Ultimately, what matters is God and his own sight of people, and he decides what is honorable and what is shameful. And for him, believing in his son is the most honorable thing you could do. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, Paul says. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. His point here is pretty much the same as what he's been saying pretty much throughout the whole letter, um, is that um, Gentiles now are also included in this, and just because you're going to uh, ridicule me for saying that, for saying that Gentiles now can be a part of this, um, doesn't make it any less true and doesn't mean that I'm going to see myself as a shameful person for believing that. I'm actually wholeheartedly thinking that this is what the Old Testament was leading to. And uh, his reasoning for even that perspective, um, he quotes another passage at the very end of the section in verse 13, everyone on the Lord will be saved. Uh, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Um, That's from Joel chapter 2. And it's actually a passage that Peter brings up in his sermon. Um, on in Acts, um, he talks about how after the Holy Spirit comes on them on Pentecost, um, he references the passage above it and says, "And it shall come to pass ever afterwards." This is in Joel two, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. So the idea here being that everyone is going to have the Spirit poured out on them. Um, the verse that Paul then uses will uh, come after that section that Paul uh, that Peter quotes. Um, this it start, uh, it continues, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So the idea here being um, that this whole prophecy is prophesying that. There's going to come a day when the Holy Spirit is poured out on all people, and then the sun's going to turn to darkness and the moon to blood red, right? And all this like chaotic um, unending of all of the powers that are up in the skies. Um, This is kind of an old Jewish idea of like the sun and moon being related to um, angelic beings that are 
um, rulers over the world, in a sense, and that all of those powers are going to be destroyed in some huge cataclysmic event um, that um, I see as the death of Jesus on the cross. And after that, what comes is that everyone now can call on the name of the Lord and be saved. So you have like three things happening all, all simultaneously. You have the Holy Spirit coming, you have the powers of the world being destroyed, and then you have everyone now being able to be call, calling on the name of the Lord and then being saved. And that's the line that Paul quotes here as proof for him that the Gentiles now are allowed to be part of this covenant family and to be saved by Christ, um, just as much as a Jew can be um, saved by Christ. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? He's now talking about Jews again. And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? Again, talking about Jews. And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. Now, here's what's really interesting about this. is I actually think that this is um, Paul talking um, specifically um, about um, the idea that like even Jewish people... Um, uh, need to have this message. This is what I was talking about at the front end. Even Jewish people need to have this message preached to them. Like they need to have it explained. The two on the road to Emmaus need to have it explained. They need to have all of this good news really explained to them. And so Paul does see a huge part of this book and a part of his calling as explaining to them. But I actually think this is the dual kind of meaning here, because um, while I do think that the Israelites are still his current focus, I also think that he's thinking about everyone, not just Jews. And because that's the line that comes right before it is everyone who calls on the Lord of the name of the Lord will be saved. And so what he thinks is Jews need more knowledge about God. They need to understand the Old Testament better and understand how Jesus fits the Old Testament. And then he also thinks that Gentiles just don't know and they just need to hear the good news. Um, and so it's both of those two he sees as like um, culminating in a passage from Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. And I think this is really at the part, a heart of what Paul sees himself as, as a person that's bringing the good news and his feet are the most beautiful feet because he is bringing that news to all these people, both Jews and Gentiles. And currently he's bringing that good news to the people in Rome and helping them understand it even better so that they don't have the divisions between Gentiles and Jews. Verse 16, but not all the Israelites accepted the good news. So he's already kind of accepted that like the message has gone out, basically, and Jews have already started to not accept it. For Isaiah says, who has believed our message? This is an interesting quote from Isaiah chapter 53. Um, the concept of this is that um, there's a servant, um, and the servant is the one that's supposed to be the um, savior for Israel, um, and he's going to undergo this horrible um, uh, uh, trauma to get to that um, place. And as a result, 53 um, has been debated quite a bit in Jewish and Christian circles because 53 Christians say it's about Jesus and um, uh, Jews say it's about Israel in the past and how, how Israel has struggled in the past with God and how they're going to be blessed through all the sufferings that they've undergone in their past. Whichever way you take it, you can actually go back in my archives and listen to chapter 53 of 
kind of an explanation of all of that. But one of the interesting things about chapter 53 is it opens up with this verse that Paul quotes, who has believed what has, um, what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Um, and then he starts talking about the servant, um, the person that is going to be, um, the person that's going to endure all this, this hardship. So for Paul, his idea here is that nobody understands, um, what the servant is. Um, and I would argue even today, it's still hotly debated who the servant is. Um, Christians have their opinions and Jews have their opinions on it. And, uh, his Paul's point here is that, um, that was prophesied in Isaiah that people weren't going to understand what God was going to do with the servant. Um, and they weren't going to believe, um, some people were not going to be able to understand or believe what the servant's message was going to be. And he talks about that further in verse 17. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. So his idea here is that, um, this faith that they have in the servant doing what the servant is going to do um, has to happen through someone explaining the message to them. Um, particularly, he's thinking about Jews here, but he, I think also it's kind of subsumed into that as Gentiles also need to have it explained to them. Think the Ethiopian eunuch, because the Ethiopian eunuch was reading Isaiah 53, actually. Um, so both of these kind of fit in this idea for Paul is that he sees himself as someone that's explaining all of this to both a Jew and to a Gentile. Um, and he knows that the Israelites are not going to accept it. He knows that not all of them are going to accept it. Um, and he sees as a result of that, um, that like that was prophesied even in in Isaiah, that not everyone was going to believe the message, that there were going to be very few that believe the message. Um, and he's, he derives a, a truth from that. He derives a truth from that from that prophecy in the Old Testament that faith comes f- as a result of people hearing that message and hearing that word about Christ and their response is then what shows whether or not a person has faith or does not have faith. If they respond to that message and have that Moses heart yearning uh, for God and have this like um, understanding that the word is very near to them and they respond to it that way, then he sees that as faith. If they respond to it by casting it aside um, and rejecting it and rejecting that cornerstone, um, then he sees that as disbelief and not having faith. And for him, faith is the way to salvation. Um, And so that's why it's a big deal for Paul to reject Jesus. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. And his point here, again, is just going back to the problem that he's dealing with is that Jews have heard. They have heard the message. And what have they done? They have not had faith, Um, even though their Old Testament and even though Moses said that they should have faith. And here he quotes another Old Testament passage to show that he thinks that actually the message has gone out to the whole ends of the world. And here, I think what's interesting about this is he's quoting from um, Psalm 19. What's interesting about Psalm 19 is this is a passage that's focused on the glory of God. I'll just read it and the first four verses just so you, you get a handle on what he's quoting here. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So who, who's what's getting proclaimed? It's the glory of God. And what's Um, who's proclaiming it? Well, it's the heavens and the sky, like creation itself is proclaiming it. Day to day, 
pour out day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. So this is like day one of creation, night and day. They're both pouring out speech and knowledge. What are the things that Paul thinks that um, Jews need to hear? They need to hear the speech and they need to understand the knowledge. You know, um, this is the really interesting thing for Paul is that he sees the Jews rejecting Christianity is really rejecting God's Genesis one creation. Um, and this is a theme that I've talked a little bit about with Christianity, but I haven't really brought it out fully is that for Paul and this, this I talked about the most in Romans eight, but for Paul, like Jesus's new creation is Genesis one happening all over again. Um, it's Genesis one happening in the lives of Christians, new creation. We are all new creations. Now the old has passed away and the new has come is really what Paul's getting at here. And so this idea of, um, uh, Christians now being a testimony of, um, their lives being lived out and what they're enduring and the hardships they're enduring and all the things they're living out. One, Isaiah 53, they're living out uh, what Christ lived out, and two, they're they're a testimony to this concept of um, day and night bringing forth testimony of God's handiwork and beauty um, and the power of God. And you can just look at a Christian's life, and you can see. Um, all of the declaration that's happening through all of that. And I think that's something that people miss a lot of the time when they see, um, uh, when they think about even evangelism is that the actions of Christians just as much demonstrate the speech and knowledge of God as do the speech itself. There is no speech, nor are there words, this verse says. Uh, this is from the psalm, whose voice is not heard. <laughs> uh their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. It, its rising is from the ends of the earth and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So the idea being that like the sun um, is also like someone that demonstrates how powerful God is and the glory of God. And that's what Paul is referencing here as a concept for Christians as what they are now. They're a sun that goes and wakes up and then sets um, and they are demonstrating um, the new creation that God is doing within them to everyone around them. He then says in verse 19 of Romans 10, Again, I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. This is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 32. Again, this is in the last section of Deuteronomy where Moses knows that the people aren't going to follow God. And so he actually makes a huge prophecy about what's going to happen to them because they're not going to follow God. And this is found in that prophecy. And he just boldly says, like, as a result of them um, making God jealous for um, following after all these other gods and goddesses, God is then going to make them jealous by then being a God to other people other than them. And that's the most easy one to kind of just like directly plan into like Jewish Gentile tensions um, is that, yeah, God's going to make the Jews jealous by um, allowing the Gentiles to um, have that same covenant um, relationship with him that um, uh, uh, he had with Israel. And they're going to be that light that shines on a hill that um, uh, 
previously was just the Jews, and that's going to make them jealous. And and Isaiah boldly says, this is the most interesting to me because both of these quotes at the very end, we're going to read both of them here, are actually from the same chapter. They're both from Isaiah chapter 65. Um, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So what's interesting here is that in the context of Isaiah 65, if you read it, um, it seems like he's talking about Israel in both both verses, um, uh, and that uh, Abraham was the person that wasn't seeking him, but he revealed himself to Abraham, basically, even though Abraham didn't ask to be uh, to have God reveal himself to him. Um, but what's interesting here, and I think this goes back to Romans 4 even, and how Abraham is both the father of the Gentiles and the father of uh, Jews, um, is that uh, Paul splices verse 1 of chapter 65 of Isaiah and verse 2 of uh, 65. Um, for verse 1, he sees Isaiah talking about um, Gentiles and how he was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask me, ask for me. And that's talking about like all the Gentiles that are now coming to faith. And then verse two is when he switches to talking about um, Israelites. And in that, um, it's a line that says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. The point here being that, like, for Paul, he's reinterpreting um, Isaiah 65 in light of Abraham, in light of all the Gentile Jewish relationships of his time period, and seeing that, yeah, now God has revealed himself to the Gentiles, and they are coming to faith, and Israel is still being obstinate and stubborn, and he can look back even to passages of Isaiah and see that that's the track record with the Israelites and with how God revealed himself to Abraham in verse one. And then all of a sudden he's now dealing with a stubborn and obstinate people in verse two. And that's something that the Jews wouldn't have uh, interpreted that way. Um, But that's the way that Paul sees it. And um, it's the way that um, for Paul, this whole situation and everything that's happening in this chapter for him is just one big continuation of Jewish unfaithfulness that was predicted by Moses and that they need to do the very thing that Moses asked them to do in Deuteronomy, to have faith. Um, and that it's just this continuation of the story. And it's very sad, um, but um, for Paul at least, the point here is that, um, <laughs> the point, to put it very bluntly, is nothing's changed with the Jews. The Jews are just still being the Jews, <laughs> you know? Um, it's not like this is causing a crisis for Christianity that the Jews aren't believing. For him, he's like, look, this is their track record. This is something that Moses was calling them to do and they weren't doing. This is something Moses predicted would happen, that Isaiah predicted would happen. Like, you know, for him, it's like... Um, This doesn't make Christianity less true that the Jews aren't believing. It actually makes it more true because it's showing all these prophecies in the Old Testament coming to their fulfillment. Um, And it's showing that, um, uh, that the Jews are still the people that need saved, um, that need um, someone like a Messiah to come in and to make them faithful because they're being so stubborn and um, because they're attempting to do things in their own way. Um, 
And for him, that's that's a problem. And so that's that's the situation that he sees right now in this time period is that uh, chapter nine is all about God and how God has had a very interesting relationship with the people of Israel and that he's still going to use an unfaithful people for his own purposes. And that doesn't necessarily mean that God's promises are null and void with the people of Israel. Chapter 10 is then about the Jewish people and how their own story is still being lived out in the current period of time um, that Paul is living in and how that doesn't necessarily mean anything um, negative towards Christianity. It actually even proves that Christianity is truer because of that. And so, yeah, next week we'll talk about, um, or two weeks from now, sorry, we'll talk about Romans 11 and how that all works out for Paul in the future and his hopes for the future of the Jews and the Gentiles and what he sees as happening in the future. Um, It's going to be an exciting one to dive into. Romans 11 is probably the least, I would say, um, talked about, at least in circles that I've grown up in. Um, And it's kind of really is the most important chapter to this whole section. It's the culminating um, argument that Paul will make with these two chapters in mind. So it's really important to really get that. So I hope this chapter was helpful. I hope everything was easily understood. Um, Thankfully, this episode um, was shorter, um, so uh, it'll be easier to get through this episode than some of the others. Um, And uh, I'm happy for that. I'm happy for you to spend less time in the podcast feed listening to all Paul's Roman stuff. I don't know if I'm happy about that, actually. The more I think about I'm glad that you get to spend a lot of time with Paul. Um, he is a wonderful man, and uh, it's a wonderful um, it's a wonderful thing to even to have the privilege to really delve into his mind um, uh, every two weeks and really to get to explore what was going on and to attempt to explain him the way that he's attempting to explain Jesus. Um, so yeah, um, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode, and I'll be back in your feed again next week. Bye.